Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. As free elections are being held in Egypt, several months since the fall of dictatorial President Hosni Mubarak, we talked to freelance writer Stephen Maher about the political dynamics shaping that country. We'll speak with Gerald Kaplan about Iran's purported nuclear threat, and we'll get a perspective from Peter Kulchiski on the Canadian government's legislation to force the disclosure of the salaries given to First Nations chiefs and band counselors. Here are the alert headlines for the week of December 1st, 2011. The United Nations Climate Change Conference began November 28th in Durban, South Africa. Rajendra Pachauri, director of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, worries this two-week conference will, quote, only focus on short-term political considerations, largely ignoring the realities of climate change and the immediate action required to reduce emissions. The Canadian government is going into this conference with an abandoned commitment to the Kyoto Protocol and has announced they will not sign on to any new international climate change deal unless every other major emitter is involved. The November-December issue of Canadian Dimension magazine has a special feature on the Durban conference. Workers in Portugal waged a general strike last week in protest of the Troika austerity measures being imposed across Europe to restore a failing economy. The strike grounded flights, halted trains and disrupted public services having seen the effect of the same austerity package in Greece. Protesters rallied against the failed measure that makes the poor and middle class pay for the crisis. Protesters took to the streets with signs saying, The Troika can't govern here. In addition to spending cuts in essential public services, the government is reforming labor laws and has extended the working day by half an hour. Occupy Toronto protesters were evicted from St. James Park last Friday after a ruling declaring an eviction was within the city's rights. When occupiers were originally handed eviction notices, protesters and lawyers challenged the city's right to legally evict people from the park. Some of these protesters have now moved into a building in downtown Toronto. Also last Friday, police tore down Occupy camps in Edmonton and Montreal. Three people at the Edmonton camp were charged with trespassing for refusing to leave. Toronto Mayor Rob Ford presented the 2012 budget on Monday and received immediate criticism from protesters in the audience. Before getting to the details of the budget, protesters called out the mayor for broken promises and plans to cut public services. Police removed the protesters and the meeting switched locations. Police surrounded the new meeting room. Ford's budget includes closures of homeless shelters, HIV AIDS prevention program cuts, and cuts to 138 arts programs in the city. A week-long protest in Cairo's Tahrir Square defined the days leading up to Egypt's parliamentary elections held November 28th to 29th. An estimated one million people gathered in Tahrir Square last Friday to demand a government that is accountable to the people, not the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, the group that ousted Mubarak in February, but now increasingly being seen as a counter-revolutionary force. A police attack on a small sit-in on November 19th sparked massive protests to bring down the military regime in the country. At least 40 demonstrators were killed. At the time of 
Recording, the elections were still being held. As three G20 protesters received jail sentences this week, more information is surfacing about undercover police officers infiltrating activist groups in the lead-up to the protests in Toronto. Last week, the Globe and Mail reported a story of two police officers posing as activists in Kitchener-Waterloo and Guelph with the task of finding people who may pose a threat to the G20 meetings. The Toronto Star released an audio recording of an activist group's planning meeting taken by one of these undercover officers. Trials for members of this group recently ended with six guilty convictions and dropped charges for 11 others. A United Nations report details the Syrian government's violent measures to suppress resistance in the country since uprisings began in March. The report, based on over 200 interviews with witnesses and survivors of government repression, finds the Syrian government responsible for the execution, torture, rape, mass arrests, detentions and abductions of protesters or anti-government forces. Earlier this month, the UN General Assembly's Human Rights Committee condemned Syria for these crackdowns. After waiting a month, since declaring a state of emergency, federal and provincial officials arrived in Atawapiskat First Nation on November 28th to survey the community's deplorable living conditions. The remote northern Ontario community has no running water, no sewage disposal system, and no adequate heating sources. Many people are living in makeshift homes using tarps or spare wood to build shelter. Stan Lutit, Grand Chief of Atawapaskat and other First Nations in the area said only when the community received media attention did the government respond. Two other First Nation communities in the area issued states of emergency along the Atawapaskat at the beginning of November. Those are the alert headlines for the week of December 1st, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of December 1st, 2011. On December 5th at 7 o'clock p.m. in Edmonton, join the Our Water Is Not For Sale Network and Jeremy Schmidt, author of the soon-to-be-released Parkland Institute report Alternative Water Futures in Alberta, for an exploration of the challenges for water in Alberta, why markets aren't the answer to Alberta's water challenges, and what alternative allocation systems that protect our water commons for ecosystems, our communities, and future generations could look like. The evening will take place in room 207 of the TELUS building at the University of Alberta campus at the corner of 111th Street and 87th Avenue. For more information on the provincial tour, which hits Red Deer on December 6th, Calgary on December 7th, Lethbridge on the 8th, and Medicine Hat on the 9th. And to support the campaign against water markets, visit www.ourwaterisnotforsale.com. On December 7th at 7 o'clock p.m., come to the NFB Media Tech at 150 John Street in Toronto for a free screening of the film The Chocolate Farmer. In an unspoiled corner of southern Belize, cacao farmer and father Eladio Pop manually works his plantation in the tradition of his Mayan ancestors as a steward of the land. A lament for cultures lost, this timely and vital film challenges our deeply held assumptions of progress. For more information, email fbmediathequeonf 
at nfb.ca. A community celebration, fundraiser, and book launch will take place December 8th at 7.30 p.m. at Cinecycle, 129 Spadina Avenue in the Back Lane in Toronto. Come celebrate the launch of the first book about Toronto's G20 protests with a night of music and drinks. Whose Streets, the Toronto G20 and the Challenges of Summit Protest is a compilation of first-hand testimonials and academic articles. It also provides analysis about resisting the right-wing corporate agenda that we can channel into the young but inspiring Occupy movement. Doors open at 7.30 p.m. Music starts at 8.30. There is a $10 cover on a sliding scale and no one will be turned away. All proceeds go to the Toronto G20 Legal Defense Fund. On December 10th, come to a celebration of International Human Rights Day at Union Centre at 275 Broadway Avenue in Winnipeg. The keynote speaker will be Jerry Kaplan, former CUSO field officer, author, weekly Globe and Mail columnist, and featured television political analyst. His lecture, When Good People Do Bad Things, will be a part of the Lived Rights Lecture Series. Cash Bar opens at 5 o'clock p.m. with dinner at 6.30. The lecture begins at 7.30 with entertainment to follow. Tickets are $25 each, cash only, and can be reserved by email at qso.vsomb at gmail.com. The Winnipeg Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid invites you to a community supper on December 10th in the Bowman Student Centre at the University of Winnipeg. Come and celebrate International Human Rights Day with members and supporters of the WCAIA and listen to Professor Henry Heller's short presentation on the Palestinian bid for statehood, followed by a discussion. The event is free, although donations are welcome, and the food will be vegetarian, no meat, eggs, dairy, or other animal products. Please RSVP so food preparation can be planned accordingly. To RSVP or to find out how you can help, email info at wcaia.ca. And that's all for Around the Left for the week of December 1st, 2011. As of last Monday, elections have been launched for the first time since the fall of President Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. And clearly there's been a lot of major upheaval within the country. However, uh, there are many people in Tahrir Square who uh, are dismissing the elections. So to find out a little bit about the political dynamics shaping the uh, country in the wake of the Arab Spring, uh, starting in last January, to the present, we have with us Stephen Maher. He is a Washington, D.C.-based freelance writer. His work has appeared in The Guardian, The International Socialist Review, and Truth Out, and is also the assistant editor for the Journal of Palestine Studies. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thanks a lot, Michael. Good to be with you. Okay, could you first of all just talk about the the elections currently underway? Um, What are some of the the major highlights of the election as you see it in terms of uh, who are the the forces that are in contention there presently? Well, the elections are just wrapping up, um, and the the primary bloc that's going to dominate the um, the upcoming, the, the parliament that will be formed following the 
completion of the tally and so forth will be the Islamists. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood will definitely be the largest bloc in the parliament. The question is really one of how, how great of a majority they'll have. Um, and this is mostly because the Muslim Brotherhood has a tremendous head start on the liberal and leftist uh, groups in terms of organization and um, a, a popular backing among wide swath of Egyptian society. Uh, they've been around for some time in Egypt. They were, the, the party was formed and the organization was formed in 1930s. And they um, maintain a strong base of support by providing social services and education and so forth to the tremendous number of poor that live in Egypt, particularly in the urban slums and so forth. And so they've been able to retain a strong base of support and will, will probably do very well. Mm-hmm. That said, it's not the case that um, large numbers of people are rejecting the elections. Actually, um, in Tahrir, the majority of people are are participating in the elections, as I understand it. And um, the, 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 the stumbling block, the difficult part, comes from them, their inability so far to organize uh, coherent political parties um, and um, and they're, they're, therefore be able to contest the dominant uh, Islamist bloc. But uh, there is some concern that uh, the, the the elections are being overseen by the by, by the current uh, authorities, uh, the military that uh, has sort of fallen from grace in a way uh, since the uh, the time of Hosni Mubarak's uh, ouster. This is definitely true. The um, the SCAF, as it's called, is the uh, the ruling military council, um, supreme council of the, of the armed forces. It's called. Um, and they, they are overseeing the elections, and they, though they did uh, prevent any international monitors from, over, from monitoring the elections, they have allowed what they refer to as witnesses, which essentially amounts to the same thing. So there really haven't been many serious reports of irregularities in terms of the electoral process. That said, what's really in co- uh, being contested is not the elections themselves, but rather the, um, what the elections are actually going, what the outcome of the elections will actually be. That that is to say that even after the elections, the parliament that's going to take power won't won't actually have very much authority at all. The um, powers of the of the incoming parliament are going to be uh, severely circumscribed, uh, mostly to the process of formulating a new constitution and so forth. And the true power will still continue to lie with the military. And that is what the real um, that is what the real struggle is about in Egypt right now. How much how much authority the uh, SCAF should continue to wield even after um, these elections take place. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the military in Egypt has ruled since 1952, um, when Nasser, uh, the, the Free Officers' Coup took place against the um, British client regime that, that uh, was in power in Egypt at the time. And um, people at first were quite supportive of the military and viewed it as having some somewhat of a neutral role and could be something of a guardian of the revolution. But uh, since that time, numerous incidents have occurred which have convinced a wide swath of the Egyptian population that the military is little more than a guardian of the status quo. Could you uh, maybe mention a couple of those instances? Well, there was one particular um, event that will probably live on uh, in infamy for some time in October when uh, Egyptian military uh, units were photographed and filmed mowing protesters down with armored personnel carriers. Um, uh, that particularly resonated with a, a wide swath of the population and um, sparked large protests. And the transparent efforts of the military after that, 
incident to use, uh, make use of the violence in order to spark uh, sectarian tensions between Christians and Muslims, which, though they appeared successful for a short time, did not end up working out. Um, the uh, Egyptians uh, across religious lines have remained remarkably united. Um, but uh, even uh, other than that, uh, just uh, repeatedly attacking the, uh, the encampment in Tahrir Square, inc- including um, clearing it entirely in August, um, subjecting uh, nonviolent demonstrators to military trials uh, and imprisonment, including torture, uh, reinstating Mubarak's emergency law, which was one of the primary targets of the revolution in the first place. All of these uh, incidents, which have been ongoing, uh, have convinced uh, particularly the group that is the, the mostly on the left and some Islamists that have been taking part in the nonviolent demonstrations in Tahrir that the SCAF, the, the military, is... is not a change agent, in fact, is their primary enemy. Um, Stephen, could you put these uh, dynamics in a, a global context? Uh, as you pointed out in, in a recent article, the uh, the United States has been backing the uh, Mubarak regime uh, all along, almost right to the end of his reign. And uh, I'm wondering how the, uh, the this what the results of the election would mean in terms of uh, the the degree to which the United States is uh, uh, supportive of or uh, you know interfering with uh, depending on your point of view the uh, the will of the uh, Egyptian people do you have a comment about that well the position of the United States is pretty understandable here uh, if uh, highly anti-democratic um, the a recent opinion poll uh, of the Arab world showed that Barack Obama and the United States and his policies uh, have approximately an approval rating around 2 or 3 percent um, in the Arab world on average. So obviously the United States is going to do anything possible to prevent the emergence of anything that even remotely resembles democracy in the Middle East, let alone Egypt, which is a pretty critical strategic ally in the region. I mean, it's the center of Arab cultural life. Um, and it, it has always sort of been a, a leader in terms of um, Arab attitudes and political opinions. Um, so the United States has been backing Hosni Mubarak and other dictatorships in the region precisely for that reason. It, it wants to get its way. It wants to make sure that its strategic interests are served, and if it were to rely on the will of the people uh, to, to, um, to, to get its way, it, it would probably be evicted from the region. So uh, obviously that's not what it's looking for. So... Um, the purpose of the Mubarak dictatorship was precisely to keep a lid on the uh, Egyptian public, to make sure that, that the territory that uh, Mubarak oversaw was kept under control and that um, Egypt remained loyal to U.S. strategic interests, in particular uh, maintaining a close alliance with Israel. Um, as people are, uh, as your listeners are probably aware, the, Egypt has gone to, with, to war with Israel three times in the past. And since... Uh, since the 1973 war in October 1973, uh, there was a there was a peace deal that was signed not long thereafter, which basically uh, which was signed by Mubarak's predecessor Anwar Sadat, which basically um, incorporated Egypt into the U.S. imperial system uh, in the region and made sure that um, Egypt would remain uh, both subservient to the will of uh, international capitalism uh, in terms of keeping its um, borders open to free capital flows and, and foreign investment, and also um, make sure that Egypt responded to the will of uh, U.S. military hegemony in the region and its desire to maintain control of energy resources. 
um, which has been the singular focus of U.S. policy in the Middle East since World War II. Um, the U.S. moved immediately following the conclusion of the war when it was clear that the U.S. would emerge as the unprecedented, uh, as the, uh, sorry, unrivaled uh, global power. It moved immediately to take control of the uh, energy resources in the Middle East, and ever since then it's been focused, uh, its policy has been focused around maintaining that, that dominance. Well, Stephen, um, these are um, very interesting times uh, for uh, the Middle East and, and the, the global um, global geopolitics uh, at large. Uh, definitely, we uh, appreciate your uh, perspectives on, on this very critical regional issue. Thank you for uh, joining us on Alert. Thanks a lot, Michael. And I've been speaking with Stephen Maher. He's a Washington, D.C.-based freelance writer and uh, assistant editor for the Journal of Palestine Studies. Iran has been in the news lately. Uh, There have been concerns about its nuclear ambitions, and Iran is currently being faced with the threat of sanctions being imposed against it in the face of those concerns. To join us to discuss the... uh, purported threat posed by Iran and why it's getting the kind of uh, treatment it is from the international community is Gerald Kaplan. Gerald Kaplan is a Canadian academic, a public policy analyst, a commentator, and political activist. He is also a former political organizer for the New Democratic Party. So thank you for uh, joining us, Gerald. Uh, Michael, it's my pleasure. Okay, now, Gerald, you you recently wrote an article in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Basically, it was called Why Everybody Except Iran Can Have Nuclear Weapons. Um, Could you maybe answer that question? (laughs) Sure. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. That that was the point of of my weekly column in the the Globe Online, Michael. I grew up, I'm a lot older than uh, I'm guessing you are, I grew up when nuclear disarmament was one of the great causes of people on the left and the progressive wing of the spectrum where I've been all my life, uh, and we didn't do very well at it. Uh, Instead of disarming the two major uh, nuclear powers, uh, Soviet Union and and the United States, we have today uh, North Korea, Russia, India, China, Pakistan, the U.S., France, Britain, Israel, uh, all with nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, according to all kinds of uh, reliable rumors, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Brazil, uh, and maybe Iran all want weapons too. Uh, to which I say, why not? I wish they wouldn't have it. I'd hope they don't get it. I'm sorry that the eight or nine or ten who have it have it, but I can't for the life of me understand why Iran, which is a specific issue we're talking about, why Iran is less entitled. Uh, to these weapons uh, than uh, than North Korea or India or the United States or all of them, Britain, France, Israel. Uh, and that's the question I simply can't get a proper answer to. Well, we remember back in 2003, there was all the talk about Iraq having uh, the potential for uh, building nuclear weapons that could be uh, given to terrorists and used to threaten the United States and such. Um, are, are we seeing the same kind of drama p- replaying itself now, only this time it's Iran rather than Iraq? I think, oh, I think to some extent, not entirely. 
the some extent is this. Some extent is a wild distortion of what's really going on. The, the latest report from the International uh, Nuclear Agency makes it clear that Iran has taken a lot of steps towards getting ready to think about preparing for having a nuclear bomb, uh, but makes it absolutely clear they don't have it yet. Uh, now, I think, uh, given Iran's own self-interest and given what we know about its, uh, its government, which is uh, a very tough, mean, uh, proud government, uh, I hope it gets overthrown soon, but it's not likely to do so. So in the meantime, that government uh, sees all around it uh, nuclear-armed enemies, it's surrounded everywhere in the Middle East by uh, by Pakistan, by uh, by by India, by uh, by United States troops, uh, United in in Saudi Arabia, by United States uh, Navy in the Gulf nearby. Uh, everywhere it looks, it's got enemies. The Saudi Arabians are talking about it. That's the mortal. They're the mortal rivals of uh, of uh, Iran for hegemony in the Middle East. Um, and so I think it'd be. Plausible. I think, put it another way, I think it'd be unlikely that Iran is not trying or not getting itself ready for the possibility of nuclear weapons. Now, this is the exact opposite of, uh, of what was happening under Saddam Hussein, who had given up on uh, all his weapons of mass destruction, destruction years earlier uh, and was not building any more. Uh, so from that point of view, it's different between the two of them. But from the point of view of distorting what the uh, report actually says, the report of the International uh, Nuclear Agency, uh, that part is similar. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the lesson here, or the, uh, the going-in principle that I would advise anyone to follow, is that everybody involved is lying and, uh, and shouldn't be taken at their word. Now, what about if you put Iran in a historical context? I mean, a lot of the, uh, the the messaging around this issue has to do with the idea of this being an unstable regime and that uh, an, an aggressive nation and that uh, countries, particularly Israel, have to defend themselves. Uh, what do you make of that kind of language? Is it borne out by the historical record? Well, I'm, I'm of two minds on all of this. Number one, uh, I would say... Un- let me say this. The, our, our foreign affairs minister, John Baird, who has been very, very disappointing in his new position, uh, loves to say at the drop of a hat, uh, Iran is the greatest uh, threat to security in the world. I think that's hogamani. Uh, I think the Americans are more dangerous. The Israelis have aggressed more. The Pakistanis are more inst- unstable. North Korea is crazier. Um, so I don't think Iran s- stands up in that respect. Iran has probably been threatened more than it threatens anybody except Israel. So I I think our listeners have to take seriously that if you were an Israeli and you heard Ahmadinejad or Khomeini or any of the others who run that country, if you heard the way they talk about getting rid of the Zionist entity and the annihilation of the Zionist entity, if you were an Israeli, you would not want to be taking any risks. Now, there's a lot of discourse and a lot of exegesis on what the words they've used actually meant uh, in the Iranian language and whether, in fact, they really want Israel to... They don't want Jews to disappear. They want that, what they call the Zionist entity, to disappear and have a Palestinian state. They've also said they're prepared to recognize both a Palestinian and an Israeli state. But the threats have been repeated 
And for all the ambiguity of language, I repeat, if you were an Israeli and there was a very strong nearby power repeatedly talking about your annihilation, you would not be very happy either, and you would want to take steps. What those steps are is a very different question, and I think nothing is more insane in the world than the talk by Israelis, including the prime minister, and a lot of prominent neocons in the United States that we should invade and bomb the hell out of the nuclear weapons in Iran. I think it's a recipe for for disaster that, that would end up we know not where. But the consequences would be enormous. This would not be like walking into Iraq and knocking off Sudan's uh, punk army or walking into Afghanistan and knocking off the Taliban in a few days. Uh, these guys are uh, well-armed. They're tough. They're determined. And if, if the Americans and or Israelis ever preemptively attack them, uh, we don't know the consequences, but, but they would be horrible. Well, uh, Gerald Kaplan, on that rather ominous note, uh, I, I'd like to thank you for, for sharing uh, those perspectives on the, the Middle East situation uh, with Michael, us. Michael, it was nice to talk to you. It was nice to talk to you, sir. Thank, thank you, you very sir. much for joining us. That was Gerald Kaplan, academic public policy analyst, commentator, and political activist, also a former political organizer for the New Democratic Party. Harper government is introducing new legislation that would force the disclosure of the salaries of First Nations chiefs and band counselors. This uh, legislation is intended to enhance the financial accountability and transparency of First Nations. This uh, Is this a question of due diligence, or is it the return to the government's uh, colonial role? in vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis Canada's Aboriginal people. To discuss these questions, we're joined on the line by Peter Kolchiski. Peter Kolchiski is a scholar, an author, and a member of the Canadian Dimension Connect Collective, and he's also an activist with the Indigenous Peoples Solidarity Movement and Defenders of the Land. Peter Kolchiski, thank you for joining us on Alert. Thanks for having me. Now, first of all, um, what is there is there a problem in principle with the idea of holding... Um, First Nation chiefs accountable? Well, it depends where the accountability goes. If the accountability is upwards to the federal government, then I would say that's definitely a part of the colonial legacy and, you know, is uh, definitely a problem. If we're going to accountable to their own people, then uh, I think that's something that uh, most of the you know, First Nations themselves like to see. Mm -hmm. So, uh, insofar as you're uh, familiar with this legislation... Um... I've read a draft of the legislation, actually, and I've looked at it a little bit. So I'm pretty familiar with it. I mean, the legislation itself is very, is quite simple. It's uh, like, you know, probably about a page of text, not much more than that. Uh, there's no sort of rationale in terms of, there are no whereases. It's just, you know, this act is called this. There's about five definitions, and then there's maybe about, I don't know, five or six clauses basically saying um, the, the reserves are mandated to produce, um, you know, uh, uh, accounting reports that conform to the Canadian um, uh, chartered accountants basic standards uh, and make that information available to members uh, and then there are sanctions if they don't which are uh, you know the federal government can take them before a superior court judge or it can cut off programming funding to the specific first nation so what specifically is it uh, about uh, that draft that uh, maybe concerns you well uh, there are several things and first i should say this is basically legislation that's been promoted by the canadian taxpayers federation 
who have been, you know, produced a report a few years ago that um, actually quite uh, their own data, they distorted basically their own data to say that there's a huge problem in terms of the amount of money that chiefs and councillors are making. Uh, but, the, you know, this has been sort of on their agenda, and so the Harper rights are pretty much in bed with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, at least on this one, probably on many other things. Um, you know, the, the basic problem here is that, again, it's accountability to the federal government. There are some situations, I've been involved in situations where band members are frustrated and can't get information about how the band councils are spending money. Uh, for the most part, I think, you know, uh, the amount of money being spent, uh, being paid to chiefs and councillors is really nowhere near the, the, the issue that uh, we need to deal with when it comes to what's going on with reserves. So this is kind of a little, at the most, a kind of sidebar issue. Uh, the biggest problem here is that the, the you know the main sanction is to withhold program and service funding from a first nation. So they're basically being told, okay, if you don't conform to this, if the leaders don't conform to this, then it's the people who will be punished, right? We'll we'll cut back on the housing, we'll cut back on education, we'll cut back on healthcare because your leaders aren't doing the reporting that we want them to do. Um, that's basically the way the legislation is written, and and so it 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 pretty much um, entrenches and carries on the legacy of colonialism that that says. You know, the accountability is all about First Nations satisfying uh, the, the federal government, uh, the mainstream society that they're, they're you know, engaged in practices that the mainstream society is happy with, uh, and uh, further gets away from what we've known since 1983. Like, we've known for decades now, almost three decades, that self-government is the only way we get out of this morass. We need to have accountability that goes, that flows to the people, um, uh, and in fact, federal government accountability for Aboriginal people should, uh, you know, there should be some level of that that flows directly to the, the people on reserves. But instead, we're getting sort of more of the same, uh, uh, you know, uh, as long as you satisfy the federal government, uh, you, you know, you satisfy everything. It's, uh, it's a determined march backwards, I would say. Yeah, we we're talking essentially about a relationship with the federal government, and it does seem as if there is a substantial power imbalance between the two. Um, what what uh, do you think we should be doing in order to uh, restore a more, uh, I guess, respectful uh, uh, approach? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the the basic principle is uh, we need to have. Uh, First Nations uh, uh, based upon, uh, you know, have First Nations governing authorities that are based upon their relationship to their own people um, and that recognize, you know, their inherent right to be self-determining. So uh, kind of like in Canada, we already have a division of power between the, you know, the provinces and the federal government. The First Nations need to have, you know, uh, so that if the federal government goes to a province and says, we want to deliver health care this way, for better or worse, the province can say, you know, no, and we have the authority to say no. Uh, First Nations um, uh, uh, constitutionally, uh, arguably, are in that position, but on the ground and in practice and in legislation, aren't aren't being treated that way. So, I think you know, uh, to a certain extent, we can say we're we're violating um, potentially the constitutional fact of the country, and certainly we're 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 not doing anything that uh, uh, that creates a situation in which First Nations are responsible to themselves, make their own decisions hold themselves accountable for those decisions, feel the effects of those decisions, any of those kinds of things that are kind of a basis of good governance uh, aren't taking place. I mean, the other thing that I would say here is, um, you know, this has, been a, uh, this has been a pet peeve of the Taxpayers Federation, so the government is doing this. The, the, the actual, you know, most, I work with a lot of different band councils, and, and you know, uh, 
uh, uh, chiefs aren't living at a at a level vastly above the absolutely impoverished level that most of their their members live at. And most chiefs are overworked and underpaid by most standards, and and uh, many band councillors are as well. And I've seen that you know the, the more typical thing that you see is is chiefs is good people who decide after one or two terms that they just can't take the stress anymore of being called 24 hours a day and really not getting much pay for it and realizing they can do better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, this is not the problem that First Nations communities are dealing with. And, you know, like, for example, at Awapiskat, we're dealing, uh, the problems are, you know, housing basic uh, 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 needs of people uh, rather than some issue of uh, the overpayment of the leadership. Um, I think I've lost track of what I was saying. That really well, gives you a sense of the sort of, you know, there is a huge problem out there. This is not going anywhere in the direction of dealing with the actual problems that are there. This is sort of a made-up problem. Well, the other, the other little thing I wanted to say is the people who may actually be affected by this are probably the political leaders who would be most lined up beside the Conservative Party, the ones who are sort of uh, running businesses and, and signing deals with large corporations, uh, that's where, the, to, to, to my knowledge, where there's corruption. That's a where money is to be found is the people who are sort of imposing a government agenda on their own reserves. And so, where there's a problem, it tends to be with uh, that group of people who actually tends to be more the, the few Conservative Party supporters among uh, Aboriginal communities in Canada. Well, Peter Kolchiski, we really appreciate your insights uh, into this uh, legislation, and, and thank you for joining us on Alert. Thanks for having me. That was Peter Kolchiski. He is an academic, he is an activist, an author, and a regular contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon, and this week's show is about leaving home. My dad left home. He came to Canada from Poland in the 1920s, and he went back, and then he came back again in the 1930s when things got a little crazy. It's a good thing he did. The the human experience of leaving home is kind of what an awful lot of folk music is made up of, and today's songs are all about leaving home, sometimes within the country and sometimes outside of the country. To start, here is Stan Rogers with Free in the Harbor. It's Blackfish at Bay in Hermitage Bay from Push Through across to Boss Island. They broach and they spout and they lift their flukes out and they wave to a town that is dying. Now it's many's the boat that has plied on the foam, hauling away. Where the winds make free in the harbor. It's a portage in Maine. You'll see them again on their way to the hills of Alberta. With lopsided grins, they waggle their chins and they brag of the wage they'll be earning. Then it's quick pull the string, boys, and get the tool out. All it away, all it away, but just two years ago you could hear the same shout where the whales make free in the harbor. Free in the harbor, the blackfish are sporting again. Free in the harbor. 
untroubled by comings and goings of men who once did pursue them as oil from the sea, falling away, falling away. Now they're Calgary roughnecks from Hermitage Bay, where the whales make free in the harbor. It's a living they've found Deep in the ground And if there's doubts It's best they ignore them Nor think on the bones The crosses and stones Of their fathers that came there before them In the taverns of Edmonton Fishermen shout All it away All it away They left three hundred years Buried up by the bay Where the whales Make free in the harbor Free in the harbor The blackfish are sporting again Of free in the harbor Untroubled by comings And goings of men Who once did pursue them As oil from the sea Falling away, falling away Now the Calgary roughnecks from Hermitage Bay Where the winds make free in harbor Free in the harbor Again much indebted to the people who went to see the men and the women they left us some of the greatest songs that we uh, ever sang and one of the most singable and lovely songs uh, came out in this last sort of folk revival in the 1960s in England a song called the leaving of Liverpool and you all know the chorus on so sing it with us <laughs> She's a floating 
Brothers, and just before that, Free in the Harbor, a song sung and written by Stan Rogers. The next song we're going to hear is from Appalachia. It's about the immigration north to the industrial cities of Chicago and Cleveland and, and Detroit, and it's exactly the phenomena that has existed for a long time in the American South of poor workers coming to the industrial north. It's very, very, very much like what happens with Maritimers heading out to Alberta to work in the oil fields. It's the same story in a funny sort of way, except the folks in Appalachia were deadly impoverished. Here's Peggy Seeger singing Ginny's Gone to Ohio. Ginny's wearing strings and rags. Ginny's gone away. Ginny's wearing strings and rags. Ginny's gone away. Jenny's gone away Jenny's 
left her baby when she went away. Jenny's gone away. Wanted to keep him, couldn't find a way. Jenny's gone away. Jenny's gone away. Jenny's gone to Ohio. Jenny's gone away. Jenny was young when her hair turned gray. Jenny's gone away. Jenny was a pretty girl in her day. Jenny's gone away. Jenny's gone away. Jenny's gone to Ohio. Jenny's gone away.
California, Arizona, I harvest your crops. And it's on up north to Oregon to gather your hops. Dig the beet from your ground, cut the grapes from your vine. Just a place on your table that light sparkling wine. Alison Krauss with Woody Guthrie's classic Pastures of Plenty. And before that, Peggy Seeger singing Jenny's Gone. And that's it for this week. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon, Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this year. Thanks for being with us. We'll be joining you again in January. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Sirik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.